The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Evanson and on the podcast this week, Cindy Yu reads her piece ahead of the Taiwanese elections this week. Mary Wakefield discusses the US opioid crisis which she fears has come to Britain. And Natasha Faroz tells us about the rise of relationship contracts. Up first, Cindy Yu. The Taiwanese rock band Mayday, the Beatles of the Chinese-speaking world, are being investigated by the Chinese Communist Party for the crime of lip-syncing. Local authorities are combing through recordings of Mayday's Shanghai concerts from November, looking for evidence of deceptive fake singing, as the CCP calls it, which has been illegal in China since 2009, although the law is rarely enforced. Last month, an anonymous Taiwanese government source told Reuters that the investigation had been cooked up because the pop stars refused a request from Beijing to say something nice about China in the run-up to Taiwan's election this Saturday. The band found itself at the centre of a row between the presidential hopefuls about Chinese interference. Lai Tingde, the vice president, the candidate for the independence-leaning Democratic Progressive Party and the favourite to win, lambasted China for meddling in the election, if reports are true. Hou Youyi, the candidate for the Kuomintang, the KMT, the more Beijing-friendly of the two main parties, has accused the DPP of whipping up anti-China sentiment with anonymous briefings. The pop stars themselves, who have fans in both Taiwan and China, are staying quiet. Being caught in the crossfire of cross-strait relations isn't good for business. Taiwanese voters can't escape the psychodrama between the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China either. Since Taiwan held its first election in 1996, the main fault line in politics has been over the question of how to deal with China, the giant across the narrow strait. Since the last election four years ago, the China conundrum has only become trickier. In 2020, Taiwan watched with concern as Beijing cracked down on Hong Kong. In 2022, the DPP lengthened compulsory mail conscription from four months to a year, in response to Chinese military exercises, which now breach the halfway point between Taiwan and China almost weekly. And, as American attitudes to China harden under Joe Biden, Xi Jinping has only got touchier about this recalcitrant province. All this could shift if Taiwan votes to return the KMT to power after eight years in opposition. It is something of an irony that the party of Chiang Kai-shek has become the more pro-Beijing voice, Yet, like the CCP, the KMT believes there is only one China. It just disagrees with Beijing on who should run it once unified. Whereas the DPP argues that Taiwan is already an independent country. The DPP and KMT also clash over Taiwan's economic ties to China. In this campaign, much of the debate has been over the continuation of a major trade deal signed with Beijing under the KMT. The KMT points to the fact that China is Taiwan's largest trading partner and Ho has pledged to strengthen the deal should he win. But the DPP has always opposed it. 
Lai has warned about China's use of economic coercion to bully trade partners around the world. The DPP says it would focus on striking more deals with Western countries. The two parties' differences are illustrated by their choice of deputy. Ho's running mate is Zha Zha Kun, son of a mainland-born KMT soldier. He has questioned whether Taiwan can rely on American support. Lai has chosen the half-American Xiao Meiting, who grew up in New Jersey and had served as Taiwan's representative in D.C. The Ho Zhao campaign has tried to frame the election as a choice between war and peace. I'm painted red every day and said to be pro-China, Ho said. But aren't peace, exchanges and dialogue across the Taiwan Strait something that should be done? It is true that in the short term, Taiwan's tense relationship with Beijing would ease if the KMT won. Taipei hasn't had a working hotline to Beijing since the DPP first took power in 2016, and it would probably be resumed. But in the long term, a KMT government will still have to resist an increasingly revanchist China. Xi has made it clear that whoever holds power in Taipei, reunification with Taiwan is his, quote, unswerving task. Reuniting the motherland is a historical necessity, he said in his New Year's message. Still, the KMT's safety-first mentality is why the party tends to be more popular among older voters. Of course, many Taiwanese feel indignant about Chinese bullying and threats. But as one KMT voting taxi driver told me in Taipei last summer, when it comes to whether or not to engage with Beijing, we don't have much choice. As for the DPP, the party can usually count on its youth vote, but not so much this time round. After eight years in government, it seems almost as much a part of the establishment as the KMT. Instead, many have flocked to a third party, the Taiwan People's Party, TPP, led by a former surgeon, Ke Wenzhe, polled strongly for much of the campaign. Ke has a Trump-like way with words. He compared cross-strait relations to prostate cancer, saying that rushing the treatment by, quote, removing the prostate can cause an even quicker death. This assertion was not condoned by urologists, who corrected the presidential candidate's medical understanding. But Kerr is effectively out of the race. Coalition talks between Kerr and Ho broke down on live television after neither man could agree to be the other's vice president. And Kerr's support has shed as voters concluded that the third candidate could never be taken seriously in Taiwan's first-past-the-post system. The TPP may yet play kingmaker in Taiwan's parliament, however, since it's possible that neither the DPP nor the KMT will win a majority of seats. Lai is still the odds-on favourite to be Taiwan's next president, but his lead has been shrinking, and the latest polls show the KMT within touching distance, somewhere between three points behind or a fraction of a point ahead. As Taiwan's voters are split on how to deal with their increasingly belligerent neighbour, it's anyone's race right now. That was Cindy Yu. Next, Mary Wakefield. Never do drugs. You'll be hooked instantly, my mother used to say. And though I nodded, I never even considered paying attention. So I don't expect my young cousins, or my godchildren, or my pill-popping friends to take a blind bit of notice when I tell them the same. But I mean it. Don't do drugs. It's not worth it. Not anymore. One of the reasons not to do drugs back in the day was, you never know what you're taking. The trouble now is not so much that you don't know, but that you do. The way things are going, pretty soon most street drugs will be made of the same synthetic Chinese-made poison, and it's lethal. Look online at the videos of zombie addicts in San Francisco twitching and lolling in the streets, 
and look at the stats. The figures for American overdoses last year are astonishing. 111,355 dead, up several thousand year on year. And a good three quarters of these deaths are the result of fentanyl, America's synthetic opioid of choice, cooked up in Chinese labs, delivered via Mexico's cartels. It's a hundred times stronger than heroin. Fentanyl is so horribly potent that young children quite often die from just the fumes or the residue, and what it does to poor unborn babies makes fetal alcohol syndrome look benign. And now it's here, this toxic junk. It's in the British drug supply. Though we were told repeatedly it could never happen. I mean, I was told, and I chose to believe it. I began to worry about a possible UK opioid crisis in the spring of 2022, after binge-watching all available documentaries about the American one. I worried mostly because I couldn't for the life of me work out why no one else was worried. Lab-made drugs are horribly cheap, there's no growing or harvesting, and they're often several hundred times more powerful than plant-based drugs like heroin or cocaine. They're easy to transport, just a few grains the size of a grain of sand are enough to nobble a normal man. And though it doesn't usually make great sense to kill off your customers, US users don't seem to care. Once you're an opioid addict, you'll do anything to ward off withdrawal. They just buy and they die. What makes us think Brits would be so different? So, I set up a news alert online for the words fentanyl and synthetic opioid and began to ask around. To my relief, every expert I spoke to was relaxed. Don't worry, they said. The American crisis is a product of its crazy medical system and the way US doctors overprescribe, especially painkillers. Americans are set up to be addicts, this was said with just a little sneer. Most reassuring was the important-sounding talk of supply lines. The drug gangs in the UK and US are very different, I was told. It's easy for Mexican cartels to take shipments from the opioid labs in China, but our European drug lords, the Albanians, get their dope straight from Afghanistan. Their supply lines run through Turkey and have done for decades. Gangsters don't change a winning formula. What seems weird to me now is that those same supply line experts must have known back then that the Taliban had already begun its crackdown on poppy farming. And they must have suspected that as a result, the European drug scene would change. Just two years later, now, the Taliban has successfully destroyed 95% of Afghanistan's opium poppy crop. So what did we think our gangster friends would do? Why are we not at all prepared? In late summer last year, the local news alerts I'd set up began to paint a picture of the Albanian gang's post-Afghanistan plan. In Hampshire, the Petersfield Post reported that synthetic drugs were on the rise. Concerns raised about ketamine and fentanyl at a meeting of the county council. In Worcestershire, officers have issued a warning after several people overdosed on isotonitazine. Isotonitazine is one of a family of opioids called nitazines and is the synthetic opioid now found most often in the UK. It's about 20 times stronger than fentanyl, so I suppose we have outdone the Yanks in a way. In the Midlands, three Birmingham men have died after taking etonitazine. Towards the end of last year, I began to see what looked to me like opioid behaviour on the streets of London, though could be I'm just paranoid. I saw a youngish woman crouched on the pavement, her forehead pressed to the concrete, as if obeying the call to prayer. She stood sometimes, jerking oddly, then folded at the waist again, and crouched back down, grinning all the while. 
On the Holloway Road, at dusk, I watched a man I thought at first was practising semaphore, his arms flinging out to left and right. If I hadn't spent so much time rubbernecking American opioid addicts on YouTube, this wouldn't have scared me so much. In the northeast over Christmas, Teesside News interviewed a local addict, Robert, 53, who had just survived opioid poisoning. They're putting new drugs in the heroin. People aren't aware of what they're taking and the nitazines are even worse than fentanyl. They're killing people and it's frightening. I nearly lost my life, he said. The point I'd like to make to my young relations and anyone still into coke or dope is that this isn't just a problem for smackheads like Teesside Robert. In the UK, opioids are suddenly turning up in almost everything. Nitazines have been found in amphetamines, in painkillers, in diazepam, Xanax, Valium, drugs that look just like the real prescription deal, in blister packs with authentic-looking pharmaceutical labels. Those same drugs at 20-something hopes will relieve their Gen Z angst, might well kill them, get anxious about that. This winter in Waltham Forest, the Met seized 150,000 nitazine tablets, the largest UK opioid haul to date. The drug death figures for 2022 released soon afterwards were the highest since records began. That was Mary Wakefield. And finally, Natasha Faroz. What makes a relationship work? I look at the happiest, most stable couples I know and wonder what the trick is. Did they spot the problems early on and talk them through? Do they simply accept each other's flaws? We all have foibles. A relationship is simply a matter of deciding which ones we can live with. I came across a couple recently who had their own approach, a relationship contract. Americans Simone and Malcolm Collins are big names in the pro-natalist movement. They've made it their mission to convince people to take relationships more seriously ideally with a view to having children. They are now married, but prior to doing so, they had in place their own contract. It comprised of a long list of questions, more than 62, about what kind of behaviour they were willing to tolerate. It wasn't exactly romantic. There's even a question about how much weight gain is acceptable. But it's an intriguing idea. The Collinses think that as society strays further from tradition, contracts like theirs will soon be the norm. They argue that everyone craves formality. They might be right. Hundreds of variations of relationship contracts can be found online. You can even contract lawyers if you need a moderator. I asked Simone what happens if one of them breaches the contract. There are no penalties, she explained. The contract has force simply because it makes explicit what each partner prefers. If Malcolm was to break a commitment, he'd know it would hurt my feelings, she says. And honestly, that's enough for me. What the contract seems to offer is a sense of security. It's not surprising that people are seeking more than that right now. Dating is hard work. At times, it can feel like a full-time job. Marriage rates are falling, while hookup culture is the norm. Online dating can feel desperate, particularly when you realise you are often dating a stranger. How much do you really know about the man you are having dinner with? After all, you don't know his friends, family or relationship history. There are nine chapters in Simone and Malcolm's contract covering every conceivable idea a couple might need to agree on, from fidelity to childcare and chores. Each one forces them to address every awkward discussion people are often so desperate to avoid. For example, what counts as cheating? The contract cites prolonged kissing that is not associated with social niceties. Is flirting cheating? Porn? Then comes the rules about sex. 
Is one partner expected to initiate? If so, what are the signals? What are the convenient times of the day to have sex? There are multiple questions too about having children. Do you want a big family or no kids at all? How many children? What to do if one partner is fertile? What happens if you accidentally become pregnant? Friends of mine have been in relationships for years without talking about this stuff. I know of a couple who parted ways after five years because they couldn't agree on whether they wanted to have a family. Might a relationship contractor fix that? Possibly. At least they'd have had the conversation earlier. You could argue that relationship contracts aren't new. Marriage, after all, is a relationship contract, and the church often encourages couples to discuss many of these issues before the big day. My brother recently attended marriage preparation counselling, during which he was asked similar questions. How important as non-sexual displays of affection was one. Another was if your child had a severe disability before birth, would you choose to have an abortion? Lots of couples find this process helpful, but these discussions are probably worth having before marriage is on the cards. The obvious risk is that it then blows up a relationship. Perhaps that's why most people I've mentioned the relationship contract to think it's deranged. But I have also noticed something else. Despite denouncing the contract as cringe or controlling, people are also intrigued. They want to read the Collins contract. A few friends have asked their partner some of the questions. There seems to be an acknowledgement that a relationship contract might be a useful tool for having those difficult conversations. While today's swipe right culture is unlikely to morph into a sign on the dotted line one anytime soon, why not ask a few of the difficult questions if it helps make a relationship more stable? That said, when I raised this with my boyfriend, he was horrified. Can't relationships be like the British Constitution, he asked. Unwritten. That's it for this week, but if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. Mm-hmm.